0: Going back to our study of apologetics, this is our second session, and in this session we're going to look a little bit more at Acts chapter 17 and the way that Paul speaks about God to the Athenians at Mars Hill, and then we're also going to talk about whether or not all people know God, uh, and if so, what do they know about God, how do they respond to that knowledge, and what does that mean about why we might need arguments for the existence of God. So if I'm not mistaken, we finished last time uh, kind of dipping our toes into Acts 17 and Paul's time in Athens where he saw all the idols, he saw the altar they had to the unknown God. And we mentioned briefly how Paul uh, got to know his audience. He uh, interacted with the people in the marketplace and with the Jews in the synagogue and whatnot. And then when he was invited to speak at Mars Hill at the Areopagus, he began by making a connection with them, by building a bridge, by telling them that he had noticed that they were a very religious people. And then he talks about that altar to the unknown God that he had noticed and says that he's there to um, tell them who that unknown God is. So there's a, a few more things that I want us to notice Uh, There's a lot we're not going to to dig into for the sake of time, but uh, there's a few more things I want us to notice about the way Paul uh, engages in this apologetic act, right? this apologetic moment in Acts 17. So one of the things he says, uh, this is picking it up in verse 24 of Acts 17, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So he doesn't start with God's promises to Abraham. He doesn't start with, you know, uh, Jesus is the Messiah. He doesn't start with the same categories in the same places as he does when he speaks to Jews in the synagogue. So if you compare Acts 17 to Acts 13, where in Acts 13, Paul is preaching to Jews in the synagogue. He can talk about things from the Old Testament that uh, his audience will know and be familiar with. And then he can tie those things in to Jesus and say, Jesus is the one we were waiting for. Jesus is the promised one. He can't do that with the Greeks because they don't know about Abraham. They don't know about David. They don't know about messianic prophecy and all those kinds of things. So instead, he starts simply with God. He starts with their uh, recognition that there's an unknown God out there, a, a God that they may have missed, a God that they don't know. And he says, I'm going to tell you about that God. And here's who that God is. That God is the creator of heaven and earth, the creator of mankind, the creator of everything. And since he's the creator of everything, he doesn't need anything. He doesn't need us to build him a temple, he doesn't need us to offer him sacrifices, all those kinds of things. Um and then he Moves to um, their own thoughts and culture. Draws out some things that they've gotten right that are true. and, And then I want you to notice what he does with these. So he's talking about the God who created everything. And then at the end of verse 27 and then into verse 28, it says about this God, yet he is actually not far from each one of us for, and then there's a quote, in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, and there's another quote, for we are indeed his offspring. What Paul appears to be doing here is quoting from two different Greek authors, and you may have a note in your Bible, like I do, that gives some idea of where these quotes might have come from, Um, and when he's quoting these poets or Greek writers, um, he is affirming that what they have said about God is true, that what they've said about God is right. So one of the things Paul is doing is he's using what is true in their own culture, in their own thoughts, and using that to help them think rightly about God. And we can do the same thing today, right? We don't have to um, use only the Bible to connect to people and help them begin to think about God. And we are going to need to get to what the Bible says. And we're going to be working from the assumption um, uh, that we know the Bible, right? And we're trying to help people to come to believe the things that are in the Bible. But we might be in a conversation with someone who doesn't know the Bible, doesn't care about the Bible. The Bible is not an authority for them that they recognize, right? It'd be like quoting the Bible to to the Greeks. They might say, well, that's nice for you, but I don't care. I don't believe that. How do you engage somebody like that and, and help them? Well, one of the things we can do, one of the things that Paul does, is use things that they recognize, that they know that are true. And so, for example, you might say, you know that song that talks about how lonely everybody is and how we feel like we're we're made for something more, but we never can quite seem to grasp whatever that is, and, and the world is just so broken and there's so much sadness. Um, Bible tells us why that is, right? That the song is right. Right? The the song is is hitting on something true. And I can tell you what the Bible gives as the explanation and the answer for that. Right? Why we're lonely? We were made for fellowship with God. Why the world is broken? Because we've sinned against God and turned our back on our creator and it's it's messed everything up. We were made in God's image, made to know God, made to reflect God's glory. We are made for a great purpose. But as long as we are have our backs to God, we're we're never going to um, experience what we were made for, right? So uh, we can start with things that people already resonate with and they know, um, and then show how those things are true. And if they are true, should lead us to God Himself, right? So. Um, Paul does that here as he quotes these Greek writers. He says that in verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So the last thing he quoted was, we are indeed his offspring. And Paul's saying that's true. And if it's true, then what are we doing with all these idols that we've crafted out of stone and gold and, and so forth? If we are God's offspring, we didn't come from stone. We, we, weren't, we didn't come from gold. If we were created by God, then the, then God can't be like all these gods that you're worshiping, right? all these idols that you've crafted. That doesn't make any sense. So what Paul's doing here that we can also imitate, is that he is gently pointing out some of the contradictions and inconsistencies in their own worldview, in their own way of thinking. On the one hand, you've got poets saying, you know, we're God's offspring or, you know, in God we live and move and have our being. Now, on the other hand, you've got so-called gods that are actually made by men out of stone and metal and things like that those things can't both be true um, and so we can show uh, where uh where the inconsistencies are where where things don't line up and then use that as a as a transition as a segue into can i tell you the truth about god which is what paul does next he talks about god righteousness judgment the resurrection of jesus uh, things like that and calls upon them to repent so that's just sort of a quick overview of, of some of what Paul is doing in Acts 17, um, and we're going to come kind of back to it full circle by the end, I hope. Um, but the next question that might come up uh, uh, come up in our minds as we're thinking about this is, okay, well, um, Paul is reasoning with them about what God is like, but they're already worshiping some kind of God. Um did they already know that there was a God? Why if so, why do they why were they worshiping the wrong gods? Um, things like that. What does the Bible have to say about people knowing God even if they don't have the Bible? Well, the Bible's really clear about people knowing God even if they don't have the Bible. So in Romans 1:18, uh, and 19 and 20, it says something like. Um, For the righteousness of God, or should be the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What truth are they suppressing? Uh, It goes on to say that for ever since the creation of the world, um, that God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived from the beginning of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. In other words, the truth they're suppressing about God, or the, me, the truth they're suppressing by their unrighteousness is the truth about God, that God exists, and God has made that known to everyone through his creation, through the things he's made from the beginning, from the time of creation until now, the creation itself, has been telling us that there is a God, there is a creator, there is one who is mighty and good and wise and powerful, who has made all the things that we see, who's made us. And so Paul says, no one has an excuse for failing to worship and give thanks to God because everyone knows that that God is there. Nobody's going to stand before God at the end and say, I would be able to say, I would have worshiped you, but I didn't know you were there. I would have given thanks to you, but I didn't know you existed. Paul says that's not an excuse because they do know. Uh, Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The creation itself, in other words, is preaching to us all the time, proclaiming to us that there is a creator. We call that natural revelation because God has revealed himself through nature. We also call it general revelation because God has revealed himself to all people in general, in all places, all times. You don't need a Bible or a church or a Christian friend to tell you these things. You just need to live in the world, right? You, you just need to see the creation. Uh, that revelation is everywhere. God also reveals himself uh, through providence. Providence is a word that just means the way God governs and cares for his creation. So there's an episode, for example, in Acts 14, uh, 15 to 17, where Paul is speaking to some pagans. I think they're trying to worship uh, maybe him and Barnabas uh, because of something that's happened. And, and Paul's trying to stop them. And one of the things he says to them is he tells them about the true God, right? He says, we're, we're just men like you. He tells them about the true God. And he says that God, you know, now overlooks the times of ignorance before. Um, but even then, uh, God didn't leave himself without a witness, but gave them, you know, fruitful harvests and uh, you know, rains and, and things like that. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. It's something along those lines. And so he's saying, you know, God has been bearing witness to you that he's there, that he cares for you in the ways that he's provided for you um, through, you know, again, rain, harvest, all, all those kinds of things. So uh, God shows himself uh, through providence. Uh, God shows himself through creation. But the kicker is what do people do with that knowledge but right? if the bible is saying everyone knows there's a god then why are there atheists why are there people who say they don't believe in god why are there people who say they don't know if there's a god agnostics who are you know kind of they're not saying we know for sure there's not a god like an atheist they're more like well i don't know and i can't know right perhaps so what is going on there well again remember Romans 118 says that people suppress the truth about God they know the truth about God but they suppress it they don't want to know it they don't want to believe it and this is true of humanity across the board because of our sinful nature right because of adam and eve's sin we all inherit the sin nature and we all are born into a state of sin and rebellion against God. Um, also, Romans 1 goes on to say in verses 21 to 23, that uh, part of how people respond to the knowledge of God, the creator, is that instead of worshiping the creator, they worship the creation. They worship idols. They worship images of animals and birds and men and, and things like that. They'll worship the creation, but not the creator. So they suppress the truth. Um, Romans 1 says they exchange the glory of God for these other things. Um, Another thing that people do in response to the knowledge that we all have, that there is a God, is we try to tell ourselves that it's not true. So in Psalm 14, verse 1, it says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, I, I used to, to read that or think about that in terms of uh, someone like, you know, someone who's an atheist, who's telling people, there is no God, but that's not what the verse says. The verse says that this person is telling himself, he's saying in his heart, there is no God. And why is he doing that? I mean, this came together for me. I, I don't know if I was studying Psalm 14, reading a commentary or a apologetic book or something, but anyway, I think something pointed this out. Um, that, and instead, he's telling himself there is no God. And the reason why is because he doesn't want there to be a God, because if there is a God, then he's going to be accountable for all of his sin. You go on read Psalm 14, verse 2, verse 3. It talks about the sinfulness of humanity and whatnot. Um, this foolish person is telling themselves there is no God because they want to keep living in their sin without being afraid of having to face the judgment of God. That's what seems to be going on there. That's what people do as well. They say to themselves and to others sometimes, right, that there's not a God because they don't want there to be a God. Um, so if people know there's a God, but they suppress that truth, they worship other things instead, they tell themselves that there is no God, why is it that we need um, proofs for the existence of God, arguments for God's existence? What what are those for? What are we doing with them? What are we hoping to accomplish? And this is what brings us full circle, right? When Paul was at the Areopagus in Acts 17, when he told the Athenians about the unknown God, right, the true God, he wasn't telling them something they didn't know in the sense that they did know there was a God. In fact, they worshiped all kinds of God. They'd have that Romans 1 response, right, where they were worshiping all kinds of created things or images of created things instead of the creator himself. And so what Paul is doing is he's arguing for why they should believe in the true God who's not like the gods that they've invented for themselves. Um, So one of the reasons why we have these arguments, these reasonings, these proofs for the existence of God is because some people try to tell themselves that God does not exist. And these arguments help us to do, help us to do for them a couple of things. One, to show them how foolish it is to live like and think like and tell yourself that there's not a God. Right? That's remember, remember what it says in Psalm 141. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. It is folly, it is foolish to try to convince yourself that there's not a God, because there is a God. And um Good arguments for the existence of God show how foolish that is and and help remove that folly. They also help to remove that false comfort that they're giving themselves by assuring themselves that there is no God. Well, since there's not a God, I won't have to give an account for this. I can live my life how I want. I can do what I want. You know, nobody sees, nobody knows, all that kind of stuff. That's a false comfort. It's not true. God sees and knows everything. We are going to have to give an account of ourselves to God. And so arguments for the existence of God help remove that false comfort, help show the folly of thinking and living like there is no God, because there is, in fact, a God. Another reason why we need these arguments is because some who know there's a God worship false gods, and they need to know what the true God is like. Again, this is what Paul does in Acts 17. He tells them, you know, based on what your own poets have have said, The gods can't be the way you are portraying them. They can't be like these idols crafted out of wood and metal and things like that. Um, And instead, he he doesn't need a, a temple. He doesn't need us to serve him because he made everything. He made us. He doesn't need us. So we try to persuade people to worship the true God instead of the God of their imagination. And then the final reason... I'll give for why we need these arguments for the existence of God or proofs for the existence of God. is because even Christians can have doubts. Even Christians can go through seasons and circumstances where they're not sure. It, it, maybe it doesn't feel like God is listening. It doesn't feel like God is there. How do I know he's there? Um, how, how do I know that He's he's real and it's not just something I want to believe? Uh, all the, the things, all the arguments that people throw against the truth of the existence of God, how do we answer those when they kind of, you know, get their get their little hooks in our minds or in our hearts or our spirit and we start to doubt and wonder and question these proofs for the existence of God can help us to answer those and help uh, build us up in our faith, help assure us of the truth about God? So, Lord willing, uh, the next couple of weeks at least, we will begin to look at some of those proofs, some of those arguments for the existence of God that I hope uh, will be helpful not only for you yourself, but also for others you may be seeking to win or seeking simply to encourage in the faith. God bless.